In the last podcast, I mentioned one or two uh, ethical decisions I made that were resolved on utilitarian principles. I considered the pros and cons and pays and pleasures, and then I acted on my calculations. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've done similar ref- reflections, even without awareness of the philosophical basis. It's deeply rooted in Western culture and perhaps even more in the British culture. Although I would like to think the basic ideas of utilitarianism started with the Greek philosophers, maybe the Epicureans or Cyreniacs, it really is Bentham who gets the nod. Bentham was born in 1748, not that you need to know that. But at age 12, he entered Oxford University and graduated by age 15. Uh, you know, this is a bit annoying. It's, he sounds a bit like the uh, Sheldon Cooper character on the Big Bang Theory. Then he turned his mind to the study of law between 1763 and 1767. This interest in legal studies is central to understanding where his ideas come from and how they percolate down to us. The British legal system was rather a mess. The punishments were often very harsh. For example, a death by hanging uh, for what we may consider minor infractions. But it's also the, the application the application of punishments was very inconsistent. There were a few ways to avoid punishment or conviction, such as having an important person speak on your behalf, or indicate your general good nature. Or for many crimes, you could even plead clergy, probably a remnant of an earlier period when the only people who knew how to read were monks and members of the clergy. If you were accused of a serious crime but not one over a value of 40 shillings, you could plead clergy. You'd be given a pardon, and a brand would be applied to your thumb. This brand, apart from being very painful, would let people know that you had committed a crime. But it would also prevent you from claiming clergy again. You could only take this option once. I'm afraid that if you do not know how to read then things were pretty grim. If the value of the offence was less than a shilling, you would likely face just a public whipping. A person's shirt would be removed, and the backed whipped until bloodied. Or you might face time in the pillory or the stocks. That might seem like the lesser punishment, but in fact many people suffered greatly. While fixed on display, a person could be pelted with excrement and rocks, or anything at hand, by the crowd. Eyes would be knocked out very easily, but often people died from the abuse. If your crime was found to be on the list, called the bloody code, death by hanging was likely. People had to defend themselves, and if they were illiterate, they were probably not well spoken or able to defend themselves either. What was on this bloody code list? Well, such grievous things as an unmarried mother concealing a stillborn baby, forgery, begging without a license, stealing animals, being out at night with a blackened face, children between the ages of 7 and 14, who showed strong evidence of malice, maybe cutting down trees, wrecking a fish pond, stealing from a rabbit warren. Of course, the rabbits would have to belong to someone writing a threatening letter. Now, by the way, there were about 200 of these 
capital punishment offenses listed by the year 1700, Bentham saw that the punishments did not reflect the seriousness of the offense. Many of these capital crimes were really very minor offenses. Application of punishments and laws varied widely. People with money could avoid punishment by having other wealthy or influential people speak to their character. Some could just plead clergy, and in, in some cases the crime was written down to a value of 39 shillings, clearly to allow for a plea clergy. Anything over 40 required serious punishment, like death. A judge might even give the option of transport to the colonies. About 57,000 people were shipped to America in the early years of the 18th century. About 160,000 headed off to Australia later in the century. By the way, transport often involved short-term slavery. The owner of a merchant ship would pay the court and prison costs of a person and calculate in the cost of shipping that person to America, for example. And, you know, this, this cost in itself could easily build up to about three pounds, which was uh, quite a large sum. The merchant then needed to recover those costs to make a profit. So that person would then be sold as indentured labor. That is the legal mess that Bentham was looking at when he began to ponder the ethical or moral justifications of the laws. Justice and ethics go together. Perhaps two questions emerge here. Why do we punish people? And when we do punish, is the degree of punishment appropriate? The older and perhaps more traditional view is that any violation of the legal or moral code requires retribution. When someone does wrong, they must suffer. Bentham thought that many legislators created punishments to enforce their own personal moral code. We still see these types of laws and punishments today. In most of Canada, for example, it is illegal to drink in public. Well, this is not the case in Britain. The temperance movement is, is still strong in Western Canada, and the people in charge of making laws here are reluctant to change them. If a woman brings a two-month-old baby into a bar, she, the servers, and the bar owner can all be charged and fined. The assumed principle is that they are corrupting a youth, or some such idea. It, it makes no sense to me, and it would make no sense to Bentham. Bentham specifically cited many laws about sex, especially acts between consenting adults. If nobody is harmed, and there are no consequences affecting others, there is no need for laws and penalties. In like manner, in 1967, Pierre Trudeau, acting as the Justice Minister, introduced a bill in the House of Commons. Trudeau appealed for the decriminalization of homosexual acts performed in private, telling reporters for the CBC television, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. What's done in private between adults doesn't concern the criminal code. Bentham would agree. There is a significant cost as well here. You consider 34% of all of the people in U.S. prisons are there for victimless crimes. For Bentham, the purpose of laws and punishments must be aimed at creating a better society, one that creates happiness and reduces pains for everyone. Laws and the punishments which go to enforce those laws should have in mind the desired consequences. Punishments ought to act as deterrents, 
and those punishments need to be appropriate for the issue at hand. The practice of British law at the time, the use of the bloody code, was rather like using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Legislators need to consider the aims, needs, and consequences of their laws and punishments. Laws should be created for the betterment of the community or society. They need to be useful for the community. But a community is a fiction. It's an imaginary assembly of individual people. The interest of the community is identical to the interest of the individual members. So, what is the interest of people? Well, pleasure, or the removal of pain. Let's look at his work, An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, published in 1789. Chapter 1, The Principle of Utility. Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as determine what we shall do. The principle of utility is really that principle which approves or disproves of every action whatsoever, according to the tendency it appears to have to augment or diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question. A utility is a property of any anything which uh, produces a benefit, advantage, pleasure, good, or happiness, or what comes to mean the same thing, to prevent the happening of mischief, pain, evil, or unhappiness to the party whose interest is considered. The interest of the community is one of the most general expressions that can occur in the phraseology of morals. No wonder that the meaning of it is often lost. When it has a meaning, it is this. The community is a fictitious body composed of the individual persons who are considered as constituting, as it were, its members. The interest of the community is the... Then is what? The sum of the interests of the several members who compose it. In point five, it is vain to talk of the interest of the community without understanding what is the interest of the individual. A thing is said to promote the interest or be for the interest of an individual when it tends to add to the sum total of his pleasures, or to diminish the sum total of his pains. So an action then may be said to be uh, conformable to the principle of utility, when the tendency it has to augment the happiness of the community is greater than any it has to diminish it. The measurement of a government, think about how this applies at a higher level, may be said to be conformable to or dictated by the principle of utility, when, in like manner, the tendency which it has to augment the happiness of the community is greater than any which it has to diminish it. So, any action that conforms to the principle of utility is one which ought to be done, or at least is, is not one that ought not to be done. One may say it's right that it should be done call it a right action. When we look at it this way, the words ought, and right, and wrong, and should, and many others of that, of that nature, have a meaning, a meaning of utility. Finally, in his section 14, or XIV, he has a, a number of points designed to establish this principle of utility as the foundation of ethical and moral judgments. He makes a little reference to and these people who, who proclaim 
moral correctness based on suppositions or maybe uh, their their own biases that they've been brought up with. He asks them to think about it. Can they find a principle upon which their judgments rest? See, if, if people are making moral moral judgments just on their own personal opinions without any kind of rational justification, all they're expressing really is their, their, their sentiments, their own unfounded personal sentiments. And as he says, what in another person he might be apt to call caprice. If a person thinks that his own judgments or of approbation or disapprobation are good simply because he believes them without any regard to the consequences, we can just ask him whether he still believes that there is a standard of right and wrong. Does this change with every person? If every man's sentiment has the same privilege of being a standard to itself? If it does, he's op- this is opening up a very dangerous line of thought. Maybe we call radical ethical relativism. You know, in the end, we just say two men have a disagreement. They say, I like this. And another person says, I don't like it. Well, they can just walk away. They have no more to say. If in turn, the person claims that no, these uh, ethical sentiments are in fact grounded on reflection. What? What kind of reflection? And if if the appeal is to the benefit of the, of the community or society as a whole, then we say, ha ah, look at this. You are, in fact, being utilitarian. How are you going to analyze the utility of this for the community? Benlin's making a very important point here. People have been making laws based on their moral opinions with very harsh punishments. I'll, I'll kill you if you do this because I don't think it's right. And there is no other justification for it other than uh, a simple feeling, a thought, maybe a book. I read it in a book, so that's what I believe. But the problem is, other people might have opposing views. How can this be resolved? There's no rational principle behind it, just, mm, I believe X. And someone comes along and says, well, I believe Y. I believe it's right to kill them. Well, I think it's wrong to kill them. Well, how do you solve it? There's there's no means of resolving these moral questions, ethical disputes. Bentham wants to point out that there is, in fact, a principle that binds all human beings and can be used to sort out what should be done in various uh, circumstances and cases. As in section 12, he says, Not that there is or ever has been that human creature at breathing, however stupid or perverse, who has not on many, perhaps on most occasions in his life, deferred to it. By the natural constitution of the human frame, on most occasions of their lives, men in general embrace this principle without thinking of it. The principle of utility. We move for pleasure, we avoid pain. This goes back to the uh, Epicureans, by the way. And it's universal. So he says, look, we can solve these disputes simply by appealing to the utility. What action will create the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people and cause the least amount of pain? End of story. In the next episode, I will discuss the happiness principle of utilitarianism and some of the refinements or potential refinements offered by 
John Stuart Mill. So until then, please subscribe to my channel and let me know if you have any questions about the material. Bye.